all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jarrett Morgan, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Over the last few decades, rates of obesity have dramatically increased. We know that obesity by itself can increase uh, one's risks of developing certain conditions such as high blood pressure and diabetes, amongst others. Today we have Dr. Nathan Alexander on with us. He's actually a current resident of internal medicine and pediatrics at UMMC. He is going to be discussing this topic with us further, and we would love to hear from you. So share your comments and questions with us this morning. Send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So first off, I just want to say to our listeners, uh, Happy New Year. I hope you all had a great holiday season with your family and have had a peaceful time so far. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to Dr. Morgan McLeod and thank her for letting me come back on a few weeks this month and maybe a few next month uh, just to cover this radio show. It's always a pleasure to talk about these topics. Uh, she is actually recovering uh, on maternity leave right now, so congratulations to her and her husband for their brand new healthy baby girl. So, uh, congratulations again to them. I do want to also introduce our guest again, Dr. Nathan Alexander. I've had a chance to work with Dr. Alexander for many, many years in many different facets. He is a great resident right now of MedPeace at UMC. So, thank you for coming on, Dr. Alexander. Excited to be here. Thank you, Dr. Morgan. Thank you. Uh, so, like I mentioned in the introduction, today we'll be talking about obesity. Uh, this is obviously going to be a very broad topic as a whole. Uh, I hope to bring in just a good overview and understanding of just a little bit of how we define obesity, what are the risks per se, um, and what are some uh, conditions that we know are associated with it. So again, if y'all have any questions or comments, feel free to share with us. So over the last, especially 40, 50 years um, in Mississippi, the percentage of our population that actually qualify as obese has really um, skyrocketed if you look at just the maps. And so Dr. Alexander, how, when you're talking to patients, how would you define, like how, how do you describe or like counsel people on what qualifies as obesity? That's a great question. So there's a, a lot of different ways that you can measure for uh, excess adipose tissue or obesity. Um, one of the most useful methods that we typically use in clinic due to kind of its ease is the BMI, which I'm sure many people have heard of. There's some other methods that are used a little bit more in research, um, some some people do use like hip circumference and a couple of other things, but uh, typically when I'm talking to patients, I talk about we define obesity as any BMI over 30. Of course, there's lots of caveats to BMI. I'm sure if you've seen a, a football player, typically they will have a, a elevated BMI, but we would not classify them as obese just because they're um, their weight is related more so to their muscles. So there are some limitations with BMI. And so there are some reasons you may try other methods of measuring in certain patient populations. 
Absolutely. So BMI is is easily the uh, uh, easiest marker that we use and the most practical that we use in clinic. Of course, BMI stands for body mass index. There are all kinds of apps online that you can use to calculate your own BMI. Uh, but looks like we actually have our first caller. So we have John from Chateau Ridgeland. John, you're on. Thank you. Uh, obesity, in my opinion, should be viewed as a in part as a kind of societal problem and uh, one which can only be addressed societally. Uh, Some years ago, the local public station aired uh, some uh, old newsreels of the time of civil rights troubles. And one of the fascinating things involved in looking at them, and uh, you might wish to do so, is that virtually no one looked obese. There were all of these well-proportioned people involved in the matter. Something has happened since the 1960s to create this enormous epidemic of obesity, and Mm -hmm. that something is a completely deliberate marketing campaign on the part of a number of businesses to... This is not exactly a precise use of, use of the term addict people to products, which in point of fact result in obesity. Sugary, uh, cola drinks, snacks, and so on and so forth, uh, violently marketed, available everywhere, have a great deal to do with this. So mm-hmm. it's it's absolutely important for people to understand their personal situation, calculate their personal BMI, and watch their personal diet. Something has to be done to help hold these very profitable institutions accountable for what they've done to society since the 1960s. Hmm. That's a good point. I appreciate your, your input. Um, any other comments or questions? Yes, uh, I want to know what what we can do as individual citizens to have some impact on the uh, the, the uh, food selling system, particularly those those elements of it which continue to promote high cal- high calorie, high salt, in a, a high sugar. And almost, in a literal sense, addictive drunk foods. Mm-hmm. What can we do to make them responsible? That, that's a great question. So, you know, I, I myself have a really grandiose uh, viewpoint sometimes when I'm approaching systemic issues like that. But I always like to start with, first of all, my small circle. So your circle around you, your family and your friends, uh, particularly your children or grandchildren, you have a lot more leeway and control sometimes over what they are um, inundating themselves with either on television or radio or music. Um, that would be the first step, just to make sure that have a good understanding within your family about what do people understand about foods? What is, what is their understanding about what they're putting into their bodies? Uh, what might that have uh, effect on as their appetite or um, how full they get or how, like you mentioned, how dense these uh, some of these processed foods can be? 
Then, of course, again, again, it reaches out to the outer levels. How can we affect? And that has a little bit, has a lot more nuances to it. Uh, but I think, obviously, our legislator has a, a lot to do with what kinds of um, how these marketing tools are used or what kind of nutritional information is included on food labels. Um, the, uh, when I did a research project this past summer on different restaurants, even within Mississippi, it was amazing how many restaurants, even some of the, the, the less mainstream restaurants, did not have all the nutritional information on their website or on their menus. And that, that really kind of sneaks in quite a bit because let's just say you go to a dessert place uh, and they have these massive cans of brownies and ice creams and you have no idea how many calories you're taking in. And that's something that you can approach even from a state level to make sure that those that information is included on there. Um, Dr. Alexander, I'm not sure if you have any other um, uh, tidbits of wisdom to share as well. I, I think you also bring up a good point with marketing, especially as we talk about in our younger children. Um, we typically try um, to avoid TV time in our youngest children. And Dr. Morgan may be able to correct me on the exact timeline, but we typically like, in my practice, I, I talk to parents about limiting to preferably no television time kind of early age, just because our youngest children are the most susceptible to that kind of marketing and kind of staying away from television at the early ages, I think can be really helpful from that standpoint as well. That's a good question. Good comment. I appreciate you calling in, John. Um, Anything else for us today? Well, only that looking at older newsreels really shows up the extraordinary extent to which the the, uh, extreme obesity is a rather recent and a cultural development. And again, thank you for your ideas on how to approach it culturally. Yes, sir. Thank you. And thank you for calling in. We appreciate you. Okay. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. And that actually does bring up a really good point. You know, when I was talking about over the last few decades, if you look at just the if you look on a graph representation about where obesity falls as opposed to the 60s, 70s, 80s, around the late 80s and 90s, uh, it's almost an angle line up in many respects. And, you know, people, uh, the research going into the causes and etiologies of obesity is is intense. It's a lot. And there's a lot that we don't understand. I think that there in general is a stigma behind obesity uh, as far as it being kind of a purely behavioral standpoint. But there is so much that goes into it. And there's so many factors, genetically speaking, that we just don't understand. There's a there's a fine interplay between uh, nature and nurture that goes into increasing the very risk of being obese, let alone being uh, immersed in kind of a, a calorie-rich environment like oftentimes we do with some of our food. And I think obesity is just such a complex disease. And sometimes I, I, I know I, what I like to break down with patients is breaking it down is it it's not always as simple as what you're taking in and what you're putting out. It seems like it's that simple, but there's so much that goes into kind of those two things with the genetic components, the environment, safe places to walk and run. And so there's just a lot of factors that kind of go into that. And it's not always easy to kind of figure out what's the, what's the magic uh, part that we can figure out to kind of help our patients sometimes. That's why it's really important for us to take good histories with our patients and figure out kind of where they're at. Gotcha. It looks like we have another question. Uh, this is Sharon from Collinsville. Uh, Sharon, you're on. Go for it. Um, thank you. Yes, ma'am. I have a sister, and her mother was obese, and she's short, and she's probably 200 pounds and 5'2". 
And I see all these diets out there. Mainly I'm telling her to stay away from starches. What about all the diets out there and what recommendations do you have besides exercising on what she should be eating and not eating? So if you look at the uh, – thank you for the question, by the way. I appreciate that because there is a lot of um, questions uh, even within my patient population about which diet to use. And really it's the one that you can stick with. Uh, it, there are a lot, so many commercial diets out there, Atkins, Weight Watchers, Keto, Intermittent Fasting, and many of them have different, um, different benefits, of course. I would say personally the one that kind of encapsulates the most – benefit both health-wise and weight loss potential as well would probably be along the lines of a Mediterranean-style diet. Um, so the Mediterranean-style diet, you can Google. There are all kind of great resources on what qualifies as that. But basically, it, it, it divides food, food up into three big categories. So green being good, orange. There's an orange category, which is like okay, and red being what you limit more than anything. So the red foods would be the processed foods any of the ultra-processed foods, and that would be like chips or candies or uh, Skittles, Twizzlers, things like that. Sodas, any of the sodas uh, which can contain high-fructose corn syrup um, as the uh, kind of the main sugar component, those are what you limit more than anything. And, of course, increasing your kind of protein-heavy rich foods, so green, leafy green vegetables, nuts, um, small moderate portions of pasta and breads, um, but if you were to kind of Google Mediterranean diet, that kind of gets you a great place to start. Now, it has to be kind of framed in a lower calorie as well. So you kind of have to keep semi-track of your overall calorie intake so you're not like overdosing on all the pasta. Um, but that's a that's great fine. place to start right there. I hope that answers your question, ma'am. You did. How about all these diet sodas? Diet sodas are okay. So the the uh, as opposed to... Or, in some patients, I will say that it, um, in particular diabetic patients, diet drinks sometimes can impact your appetite, so they kind of drive you more to – so it's not necessarily that you're getting the calories from those, but you may have a drive to go for other more calorie-rich foods. So it's kind of almost trial and error how that okay. does on your overall appetites. But in general, it's a fine replacement. Okay, great. Thank y'all for being there. I appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. And now we have another caller. Thank you, Sharon, by the way. But we have another caller. This is Roger from Florence. Well, I just want to echo the sentiment, not sentiment, the observation of the first caller. And I regret that I very seldom hear from your medical community Mm -hmm. any comments uh, other than the very soft comments that, that, that you two have made. It seems to me that the medical community should be right on top of this social problem that we have and be after the legislature and the Mississippi Medical Association, whatever it's called, should take a stand and should be campaigning because I think that there's no evidence, no evidence, I don't know this, I want your answer, Mm -hmm. no evidence of a genetic change in the last 40 years that has brought on genetic responsibility for obesity. Now, some of your comments already this morning encourage this notion, and people have this notion now, and they're being taught, oh, this is not your fault, it's genetic. Mm -hmm. So you've got obesity, and it's been labeled. I thought this was a terrible thing when the, I've forgotten which organization it was nationally, labeled obesity as a uh, some kind of a medical problem. Well, it is a problem. But it gives the, it, it supports this notion 
that there's not a behavioral component. And there is a behavioral component, in my opinion. I, mm-hmm. want your, I want your direct statement on that, and I want your direct commitment or non-commitment for the medical community to address this non-genetic component. No, I appreciate your, your. I know I really do appreciate your comments, Roger. So I'll approach it almost um, in a similar regards to hypertension. So from when I say mention genetic components, and I'll separate it out in just a moment. Um, when I mention genetic components, let's just say you have a child who is raised in a, a nutrient dense, or sorry, I should say nutrient kind of empty environment. So let's just say his mom, he's growing in the womb, and his mom has relatively scarce. Um, access to foods. There are genetic changes um, within that child that are changed purely because of maybe his mom's access to certain foods, either uh, access to uh, cheaper, less nutritious foods, or limited calories overall. So by that regards, there are changes even within that child inside the womb that are um, uh, genetic changes are changed based on that environment so that when the child grows, he is more at risk to be more susceptible to retain calories and retain uh, weight because his body is almost used to that nutrient-scarce environment, but he is raised in a more nutrient-dense environment. So that's why I mentioned the risks. So yes, in that regards, it's not like genetics purely causes, but I mentioned the interplay between genetic risk and the behavioral component, which is in that regards, maybe drinking more Cokes or drinking more juice or less, uh, more sedentary than should be. And so you're right from the standpoint of there is a large behavioral component, be it early exposure to less nutritious foods, being more sedentary. But it may be uh, in many different regards that people have higher risk based on their pre-birth exposure or of their genetic inheritance. Does that kind of clarify some things? But I will also branch off of another part to say I, I do agree that we as providers need to be a lot more aggressive across the board with legislator, uh, with marketing, with TV stations, with foods, with foods that they advertise for young kids, even for us uh, older folks that we need to be more um, involved because we are the ones that kind of deal with the fallout from that. That's excellent, and I really thank you for that clarification. I had no idea that in the womb genetic changes can can begin, and uh, that does explain some of the generational uh, patterns that, that we observe. That helps me work on my prejudice as I observe these people waddling around and buying foods that I don't think they should buy. And I criticize them in my mind, and I, I need to work on my prejudices. Yes, sir. But I also, I really want to encourage the medical community. I have a son who's a physician, and I have a brother who's a physician and all that. And I don't see much aggressive work on the part of our medical community. So I hope you two can and others can can work on that. I've never heard a statement from the Mississippi Medical Association. I've forgotten if that's the correct term. Mm -hmm. I've never heard a statement on their part. So work on it and elect somebody. have an old friend who was president one time. He was very aggressive. He's uh, retired now. But raise your voice. I thank you very much for your contribution and that very clear statement. I think that's very helpful. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling in, Roger. I appreciate it. All right. I don't know, Dr. Alexander, if you had anything else to, to add to that statement. 
No, um, I, I can't think of too much more to add. I, I think you really spoke really well of it. It's a, I mean, it, obesity is a very complex disease and, um, I, I thought your illustration was good. And I kind of, how I explained to it as patients too, is our genetics is what we're born with and our environment is what can change as, as well. And so it's possible that people in the 1960s and seventies with similar genetics were in a, a different environment and may have responded differently compared to what environment we're in later here in the 2000 or in the 2023. Absolutely. And, and as far as, like I mentioned, the research, there are so many um, theories about just that time period in which you saw like the skyrocketing rates of obesity. Um, some ab- obscure theories have been uh, processed foods, additives. They have been uh, bottled water uh, and some of the additives that go into bottled water. Those are just some obscure theories, but none has really been uh, kind of validated so far. But um, going back to Roger's comment and question that there is so much um, research into the basic causes uh, with the interplay, of course, with behavior. Uh, so, of course, we can't affect people's uh, genetics, uh, not, well, not, not yet, not practically speaking. So, and there is some research on that, too, but that, that's for another day. Uh, but we can affect people's, uh, can counsel people on better behavior. There's one more little ev- um, branching off point that I want to talk about causes, um, and as far as where it leads into with regards to the complications. So I think we've kind of beat the causes um, to uh, beat that dead horse. But going into the, just the causes and, and what overall are the increased risks of obesity. Uh, and so, Dr. Alexander, when you're talking to patients, what do you tell them uh, about, like, just the state of being obese, even if they haven't necessarily developed complications? What are patients at risk for? Uh, over uh, as far as a medical conditions, there's a multitude of different medical conditions it places at risk for. Usually, if it's someone coming into my office, the first thing I kind of just talk about is just uh, how losing weight can just make feel people feel so much better when you when you're able to get back to a normal BMI. Um, one of the things I know a lot of my patients ask me about is like joint pains are pretty common with obesity, and those are something that t- typically can get pretty significantly better if we're able to kind of get back to a normal weight. But some other more serious medical conditions that kind of develop over time is uh, hypertension. It places us at a little bit increased risk of stroke, diabetes. Um, There's also an increasing epidemic that our gastroenterologists have talked about of fatty liver disease that some people may have heard of. We're starting to see that a little bit more, um, and maybe we're also being more aware as a community as well and screening for it a little bit more than we have in the past. Uh, and, of course, cholesterol problems as well. It's kind of some of the main ones that I typically think of. So um, going uh, next, it looks like we do have another caller. Uh, this is Jessica from Jackson. Jessica, you're on. Okay. Hey, um, I was just calling in to see what your thoughts were about how to manage um, the balance between obesity and eating disorders. That's a fantastic question. So I think that kind of goes along with, uh, from the standpoint of stigma, um, and obese individuals 
at higher in, increased risk of suffering from bullying and suffering from de- rates of depression or anxiety. And so the compensation or the reflux mechanism, if uncontrolled, can be eating disorders. It can be bulimia or anorexia, states in which you may already, of course, be obese, but your reflex in order to, quote, fix the problem may be to avoid nutrition um, in general. Um, I think, first of all, having a good support system around you. Um, I think ones that may acknowledge the problem or acknowledge the needs of change, but not from a a condemning way or a judgmental way, more of a a gentle assist. Um, It may be a, quote, problem, but it's one that we can um, hopefully improve in a, quote, non-judgmental and comforting environment. Um, Therapy. I think we drastically underestimate the need for therapy. Um, I will say rates of depression and anxiety and mental disorders have it skyrocketed just in within COVID times. Um, even there were a problem even before then, but even during COVID times, people have just been a lot more sensitive to life stressors. Um, so I think the threshold for people to seek therapy and, and have that third person removed um, is very, very beneficial. And if necessary, medication. Um, even as a provider, I used to um, not quite be on the uh, appropriate way of saying if we need medicine, medicine may be the way to go. Um, but my threshold to even suggest therapy or in medicine, uh, ideally both together, uh, is a lot lower now. Um, I think that people need to kind of get that stigma of seeking therapy and getting on uh, medication to control those um, urges Um is very, very beneficial. And so, Dr. Alexander, I don't know if you have any other comments based on that that you've seen in your own patients. Yeah, I think um, you bring up a great point. I feel like especially our teens are at a very at-risk population for eating disorders. And I feel like that's where I, I find it to be the hardest to kind of during counseling. And that's where I think therapy and getting um, a good model of multiple different people involved is the most important um, because they're going to need a lot of different different specialties and a di- different people kind of weighing in because we don't want to stigmatize people and we want to make sure that we're doing it in a healthy way and we don't want people to develop eating disorders and and, and uh, I think that's what's important. That's tough in our teens and I think that's where they benefit the most from kind of a multidisciplinary care model for our teenagers since they're so at risk. And one other point, I think when we're starting a process and starting a journey of weight loss, I think it's really helpful to also understand that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And we as humans, we love things that are quick and fast. Um, and, and the process of weight loss, it, it takes a while. And again, the human reflex is to, I want this quick. So eating disorders, uh, it is easy to develop eating disorders in, in response to that. But keeping that intentional effort that this is going to take a while, this is going to be a pound or two a week, maybe. Um, some weeks I may not um, lose anything, but I'm just going to stick with it. And again, having that support system, having that personal intentional mindset helps you to make it through this long marathon of improving health, number one, but also hopefully to lose weight uh, and improve your overall well-being as well. Thank you for your call, Jessica. I appreciate it. Anything else, ma'am? Thank you. Y'all, no, that's it. Y'all are doing a great job, and I appreciate your perspective. Thank you very much. I appreciate you, ma'am. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you.
This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jared Morgan, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. We have Dr. Nathan Alexander on with us today, and we've been talking about obesity and some of the related complications that go along with that. We've actually had some great callers so far, so I appreciate any comments and questions so far. You can always send an email at kids at mpbonline.org. Right now, it looks like we have another question. This is coming from Wyatt in Hazelhurst. So, Wyatt, you are on. Hey, good morning. How are y'all? Good morning. How are you, sir? Good. Uh, Y'all touched on this a a little bit, but um, I was wondering, uh, in relation to the uh, new parameters that were put forth uh, related to uh, obesity and childhood, for our state specifically, with uh, the issues we have with not only food deserts in the community, but also oftentimes limited funding for school districts for the most healthy meals, what sort of contributor do you see uh, that the inability to either access or to afford, you know, healthy calorie means for, for our kids and then what that means for them as adults as they grow up? Absolutely. Thank you so much for your question. Um, are, I'm sure you're probably speaking about the very recent guidelines that have changed, I believe January 9th, actually, of this month. Um, and I, I felt like the guidelines were really well written and they've kind of encompassed a lot of the other issues that we talk about a lot in practice and you're kind of speaking about as well of a lot of those social determinants of health. And the guidelines kind of help address some of that and kind of go into a lot of the different socioeconomic factors, social determinants of health. And um, and in Mississippi, I think that's a really hard problem to address at times. And, There's, like you said, there's areas of food deserts, there's areas where um, there's not good access to to good good food, and there's also sometimes just not good access to safe places to exercise and walk. Um, And kind of the guidelines actually do charge us to be a little bit more involved in our community, because those aren't... um, those parts are not things that we can easily solve in the clinic setting, counseling our patients. And so it kind of calls for us to be more involved in partnering with community leaders to help address some of those problems. And so I, I think that's a great point that you bring up. And uh, I, I hope if there's any physicians listening that they're also help stay engaged with the community and figure out ways that we can be partners with different members to help address some of these issues that we can't, can't always address in clinic. Um, there's a couple other um, changes to some of the guidelines that they have as well. Um, it's kind of how some of us have been practicing, it, um, and so it's kind of more a little bit of an update. Um, and, and so it kind of goes into just saying that it's okay for us to use certain medications with certain comorbidities and some other things. that. And, and typically this is done in a more specialized setting with um, multiple different specialists, such as endocrinologists, a pediatrician, and a couple other people on board to kind of discuss some of these um, different treatments that we have available. I'm sorry, that was a little long-winded, but did that answer your question? I think he may be gone, but I think it may have answered okay. his question. So thank you, Dr. Alexander. That's a good um, good input, especially from the newer guidelines. So talk a little bit about kind of what you learned uh, or what may have changed for you and your practice with now that the new, new guidelines have come out. Yes. Uh, and so I thought what was really interesting is they, di- they really addressed a lot of the social determinants of health and 
uh, really called for us to be a little bit more involved in our community to kind of help with a lot of those. And in Mississippi, I think that's particularly important. Um, and there are a lot of good organizations that are working to help meet some of those needs. And I think the more involved we are with some of those organizations, I, I think the, the better health of Mississippi that we can have. Um, other parts of the guidelines that changed, it, um, there's not really any kind of typical. So previously, there, I was not aware of any recommendations for bariatric surgery in younger children. Um, this carved out a very small, very select patient population where some may qualify for that. Um, and I'm sure that's probably what some of our specialized centers have probably been doing. And so it's kind of updating that to allow that practice point. But it's a, it's a very small, very specific patient population with certain comorbidities and different BMI cutoffs. Um, and so not to suggest that we're thinking of bariatric surgery in many of our young children. Mm -hmm. it, it's a very, very specific kind population. And as well as some children that are developing some comorbidities, um, we are seeing some children that develop diabetes. And so there are some drugs that uh, we use to treat both diabetes and can also be treat, used for weight loss. Uh, but typically we use those kind of more in children for more of like the diabetes type indication um, with also the kind of the added benefit if weight is an issue to kind of help that as well. That brings up a good point and actually one that I've probably heard more than any other uh, question so far. So I, of course, have my own weight loss uh, uh, practice along with three others and a huge number of uh, questions about the newer injections or newer medicines, like you mentioned, that treat both diabetes and uh, obesity. And of course, you may have heard on, on TikTok or Facebook or YouTube, a lot of different uh, celebrities who either uh, even who are using these types of medicines. So I, will, of course, want to talk about them just a little bit. So within that class, so there's class, which we uh, just anecdotally call uh, GLP-1s, uh, which include things like Victoza, or also called Saxenda, uh, or Ozempic, or Wigovi, many different names that you'll hear uh, that have been approved for weight loss. Um, in various different individuals. So the constraints, though, that we have now with some of them are that we can only use them in diabetics. And so have you gotten a chance to use many of these medications and have you seen results from them yourself? Yeah, I've uh, fortunately had a couple of patients that have qualified for these medications, um, mostly as the diabetic indication. I haven't had anyone for the weight loss indication. Typically, they'll require a diagnosis of diabetes. Um, honestly, where I've seen the most benefit is really it's they're very good diabetes medications. I've seen really good benefit as far as their A1C, which is what we measure to kind of see how they're doing is with their diabetes. I've seen some good reductions in that um, and some reduction in the use of insulin. And that is probably wh where I've seen some of the weight loss from because insulin can cause a little bit of weight gain. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I've really have liked using these medications as kind of a way to reduce some of the insulin requirement. And I'm, I'm sure as you've heard on the news too, insulin can be quite expensive. And so if there's ways we can help reduce that burden for patients, I think that's, that's awesome. And that's been really helpful. And I've also seen some weight loss with the drugs as well too. 
Absolutely. So I think it's important for patients to at least mention it or at least discuss, have a careful discussion with your provider to see if you do qualify. Now, in general, I will say from my own practice, uh, there are a select few people, of course, who do qualify for weight loss medicine. Not everyone qualifies. Uh, Usually you have to be a certain BMI level or have certain complications uh, associated with even a lower BMI level before you qualify. But you're exactly right. The constraints that we have nowadays is that even if medicines per se are indicated for treatment of obesity in diabetic patients or non-diabetic patients, I found that with my population with insurance, uh, the constraints of insurance really dictates a lot of what I can use. So even recently, uh, let's just mention Wegovy. So Wegovy, of course, is in is all the rage in the news that was approved last year for use in patients um, with or without diabetes. But regardless, we're now at the point where due to um, supply chain shortage and uh, shortage and other. Um, uh, complications that we can only use that patient that medication right now in patients with diabetes, exactly what you mentioned before. Um, but there are other uh, options for weight loss medicines, but it's, it's just a careful conversation that you need to have with your provider. Um, I encourage all of patients if you have thought about that. But of course, there are plenty of other lifestyle changes that, that can be taken um, in the meantime. So when you are counseling your patients on the appropriate lifestyle modifications, Dr. Alexander, what, how do you initially approach patients um, with how they can get started? Similar to what our callers have mentioned earlier, but how do you um, frame things? Typically, when I'm talking with patients, the first thing I do is really just listen. I think everyone has different, different struggles, different habits, different barriers. And so just kind of listening to see kind of what are the barriers for, for that patient. Um, Because some things may not be uh, obtainable. They may be in a place where they don't have any safe places to go to go walking or running. And so finding out kind of and then working with the patient to see what they can do. Um, Recommendation wise, typically we like to see at least 90 minutes of physical activity a week or um, up to 150 can has been shown to have some weight loss benefit. And so kind of trying to work with the patient to see how to get there, I think, is the, the most important thing. Um, as far as food, I think it's also kind of the same story. I think it's good to hear, hear from your patient kind of what their barriers are and kind of work with them to see, see what would help them the most. And, uh, for instance, if they're drinking lots of sugary drinks, that might be a good first step to kind of address. And so finding some of the easier things to address and also letting patients be okay making their plan, I think is important too. Everyone has that thing that they love. And I don't think we should deprive ourselves of the things that we find some good joy out of. It's Mm -hmm. just, we may have to find some limitations in how often we may have those things. But, you know, if if you love a Coca-Cola and you want to have a Coca-Cola once a week, you know, I think working with patients to still find joy in what they're eating and find joy in life. And we, because we don't want to be the barriers of bad news and make everything miserable. <laughs> um, and so I, I think finding a good plan where the patient's happy, I think, is, is important and kind of working with them and making it very individualized. Absolutely. I think um, that, that's a very similar approach to how I do things as far as working with patients to see what kind of goals they have in mind and what can I do within the confines of what they can do. Uh, I think the concept of not taking away all your joy is very, very important. Uh, I love my ice cream myself. Uh, my sister can appreciate that. Uh, and, of course, my dad, who's also listening right now, definitely knows how much I love my ice cream. Uh, but 
keeping that within uh, the confines of how can I adjust my diet overall. Um, and especially from the standpoint of activity. Physical activity is one of those, um, uh, no one, not everyone likes to exercise. That, that's immediately what I know for most of my patients that I talk to. But there are some things that you just enjoy doing. So if dancing is what you love, dancing can be your cardio that you do four or five times a week in your living room on a YouTube video. And so that's just a simple goal uh, to accomplish how much cardio you can incorporate into your activity. Uh, so I appreciate your, your, uh, your candor and your, your how you frame things with your own patients. So, um, of course, we've been talking about obesity and talking about like how we um, uh, as providers can talk with patients and how patients can adjust their overall lifestyle um, to accomplish their goals. This is Southern Remedy Kits and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Again, I'm Dr. Jarrett Morgan, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. I have, of course, Dr. Nathan Alexander, who's been with us on today to talk about obesity. And we've had a lot of uh, good callers, good comments. You can always share any more comments or questions that you have. Send an email, kids at mpbonline.org. Again, we've been talking about obesity, and I kind of want to shift gears just a little bit, Dr. Alexander, to talk about some of the more primary uh, complications or conditions that are at higher risk for obese individuals. In particular, of course, kind of what we've mentioned already, diabetes and hypertension. So kind of what are what is your experience with, per se, hypertension and how you kind of approach um, what you tell patients? Hypertension, I, I think, is definitely an important subject to talk about. Um, and so as we spoke about earlier, uh, hypertension can put you, or obesity, excuse me, can put you at a little bit higher risk of hypertension. Um, somewhere in the media, we often call it the silent killer. And the reason is that blood pressures can also often be a very elevated before we experience symptoms. And typically, if we're experiencing symptoms, it's actually usually an emergency if it's related to our hypertension. Um, though as hypertension goes on for long periods of time, it can lead to increased risk of stroke. It can lead to severe kidney disease, sometimes requiring dialysis. Um, and so it can really affect a lot of the different organs in the body. And we typically define hypertension as greater than 130 over 80. I think an important caveat, is, as you can imagine, our blood pressure kind of fluctuates throughout the day. Um, Anxiety-provoking events can often cause our, our blood pressure, appropriately so, to increase. Um, and we, when we see this in clinic, we call this white coat hypertension. And so um, we do see this pretty often in clinic where people... Patients may have very normal blood pressure readings at home and very high blood pressure readings in the clinic office. And so I think home readings is actually a very important, good first step to kind of see where you're at, along with good clinic readings, just because our, our machines are typically validated and we make sure that they're appropriate. And so it, I think this is an important thing to make sure you're going to your doctor at least once a year, even if you're doing well, make sure that your blood pressure is doing fine and um, kind of get that rechecked at home as well, too, can be just as important. I agree. And I think that, you know, in my own patient population, it really doesn't matter um, what level per se I've seen hypertension or rates of hypertension pretty much throughout many different body sizes. But again, just as what we've kind of mentioned, definitely at higher increased risk once you get into the obese range, which just to clarify, based on BMI, is anything above 30. So 30 or above, I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, defines itself as obesity. And of course, we kind of go into subclasses because we as scientists like to define everything and subdivide everything. So, uh, But anything above 30 BMI would be obesity. 
And so the point, especially what Dr. Alexander mentioned, just harping on that, is that it is a silent killer and that even if you previously have not had a lot of health conditions, you may have uh, higher blood pressure, not feel it per se, but definitely your organs feel it. And over time, that can definitely, in and of itself, obesity leads to maybe a higher risk of hypertension, high blood pressure. High blood pressure increases your risk of certain organ damage and uh, dialysis, strokes, blindness, uh, heart attacks, liver damage, all that dramatically increased as well. Uh, and so just being intentional and staying on top of things for adequate screening is definitely important. But even at home, even at home, people can do home screenings. There are plenty of uh, machines that people can buy. Obviously, you do have to be cognizant of the right cuff size. Mm-hmm. Cuff size is definitely one of those problems that we've kind of had in clinic at times with figuring out or determining which is the appropriate cuff size per patient so that we don't get either abnormally high reading or abnormally low reading at times. Uh, and being, of course, just like what you mentioned, at the right time. Obviously, our blood, ple- blood pressure fluctuates. I'm sure mine's a little bit elevated right now. But <laughs> Uh, making sure that you're checking your blood pressure at the right time across the day. So if you check it, let's just say at nighttime, seven o'clock, you've eaten your dinner, you sit down, chill for about 15 minutes and then check it. Being um, intentional about staying at that same time frame to see how it goes at that time frame. I think that's important. So um, one other thing, I guess, switching in our last few minutes, of course, is diabetes. So I guess what has been your experience with diabetes and obesity? Um, In my experience, typically, um, at least, and to preface, there's two different types of diabetes. There's one, uh, the first type is type one diabetes that we're not really speaking a whole lot about today, but that's a, a deficiency in the pancreas that is no longer secreting insulin. Um, and is not really related to obesity or, or elevated weight. Uh, we're, when we say diabetes, typically we're talking about type 2 diabetes, and what that is is it's an insulin resistance. And so your your pancreas is appropriately sub- secreting insulin, but your body just doesn't respond to it appropriately. Uh, and there's a couple of different uh, guidelines that we can use to diagnose diabetes. Uh, one is a, a, a one-time finger stick of... 200. And so that's the little pin prick that checks your glucose, glucose, and then also a fasting greater than 140 twice. Um, those are a little bit more impractical. Uh, to, and to be uh, A1C is a lot easier to obtain. And so typically, that's the number that we'll use is it's a lab draw, it is the average of your glucose over a three month period. And anything above 6.5 is what we typically think of in the diabetic range, uh, along along with, um, and slightly below that, like 6 to 6.5, we think of as prediabetes, and we start to be concerned and make sure that we're uh, kind of making sure we treat appropriately as well. Gotcha. And I think with either of those complications, and you mentioned this earlier, is important to frame it in terms of goals. Now, obviously, there are medications for either condition, but weight loss in and of itself has dramatic effect even on all of these things. So your risk of certain cancers with obesity is dropped if you lose weight. Hypertension, I've had plenty of patients who have been able to wean off medication, which, of course, everyone loves that goal, 
be weaned off of medicine uh, at a point of weight loss. And in my practice, and even in like different studies, uh, people will comment, how much weight do I have to lose? And I believe you mentioned this earlier, like how much weight does a person have to lose to really see the benefits? Uh, so for sleep apnea, people tend to um, have to lose a little bit more weight. So if you have a starting body weight, people tend to have to lose a little bit more like 15% of their body weight in order to really see some benefits. But with blood pressure and diabetes, like we're talking about, people typically have to lose a lot less, so around 5 to 10% of their body weight, which is a, a good goal to have in mind. So I've enjoyed eating a Dr. Alexander for coming on and talk uh, with this with us on this topic. So thank you for coming. Thank you, Dr. Morgan. And thanks to everyone who called in with questions or comments and listened in. I appreciate talking about this, so I hope everyone has a great week. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.